Hello there, how have you all been? Dr Neil Buttery here. Hope you've been well in the last three months or so since the last episode came out. Yeah, I'm back with the fourth season of the British Food History Podcast. I've got some fantastic guests lined up for you throughout this August and September 2022. I've been up to a few bits and bobs that I'd like to tell you about, but I know many people just want the episode proper to start. So I've saved all that kind of chatter for the end, except to say... Since the last season ended, my book, A Dark History of Sugar, published by Pen and Sword History, is now available everywhere to buy, in both physical and digital formats. It's been getting some good reviews and I'm very pleased, I must say. Anyway, enough about me. Let's meet our first guest of season four. It's the fantastic Felicity Cloak. Felicity is an author and journalist. She's possibly best known for her excellent How to Cook the Perfect column in The Guardian. It's certainly where I first came across her, but she's published several books too, and her brand new one, Red Sauce, Brown Sauce, published by HarperCollins, takes her around the UK in a breakfast odyssey. Now, breakfast is something we hold dear in our collective consciousness, even if in reality we're just rushing out of the door in the morning, shoving a slice of toast into our face late for work. But there's one thing that truly unites Britain, Felicity's blurb says, from Aberdeen to Aberystwyth, St Ives to St Pancras, it's an obsession with breakfast. We discussed the difficulty of cycling around the UK, eating breakfasts and meeting producers during a pandemic, injuries, the origins of the fry-up, why it's okay to like both red and brown sauce, and why it's okay to like neither, the importance of having pudding in a breakfast, and why we should be more proud of our more humble regional foods. I'm back at the end to tell you about this episode's Easter egg, amongst a lot of other things. But for now, over to Felicity for a discussion about breakfast. Good afternoon, Felicity. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. I'm delighted to be here. I love your book. I have it here, Red Sauce, Brown Sauce, your odyssey of breakfast around the UK. Well, first of all, I can't believe somebody hasn't written about it already. (laughs) <laughs> no, me neither. Me uh, neither. I thought I must have missed something. But no, it's a huge gap in the market, I would say. Yeah. Well, how did you um, arrive at the at that subject? Well, I have to say that I the idea of doing something in Britain came before the breakfasts. I just wanted to do something. So my last book was French-themed, cycling around France, looking at classic French recipes. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to do something similar for Britain because I feel like certainly when the idea of this book was conceived pre-pandemic, we just didn't really go on holiday in Britain. We maybe went to see relatives or went to a Mm -hmm. wedding or maybe we'd do a weekend, you know, city break or something. But in general, we'd be driving, you know, you would drive to a destination and you wouldn't really look around on the way. There was none, none of the kind of traveling or road trip that you might do somewhere else. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to do a cycle around Britain, exploring it in more detail. And I thought, what, which food unites us as a sort of collection of nations and I was thinking, you know, could it be the Sunday roast? Do I have to go and eat, you know, eat Sunday roast 
every day. Can you get a Sunday roast on a Monday? Um, then someone told me that apparently Sunday roasts aren't very popular in, in Scotland particularly. Um, mm-hmm. So I was quite relieved not to have to do that. And then I was thinking maybe a fish and chip tour. That quite appealed to me because I do love fish and chips. Mm-hmm. I think I could eat those every day. And then suddenly it hit me that the breakfast is genuinely the one thing that is as popular you know from uh i would say you know shetland to the silly isles mm-hmm. um and it's so democratic it's so you don't have to be a foodie to have opinions on breakfast you literally it, it everything in this country is to do with class but i'd say that the breakfast transcends that obviously you can get expensive breakfast and cheaper breakfast but they're both equally valid as a british breakfast and i thought that was really interesting so when I thought of it, I was like, of course, that is the thing. That's the thing that defines us uh, abroad. If you ask people about British food, the fry mm-hmm. up is always mentioned. So, yes, I, when I when I when I thought of it, I was like, oh, OK, that is the thing. That is the only thing that unites us, possibly yeah. not just in terms of food, actually, possibly in terms of politics and football and et cetera. The breakfast is the one thing that brings us together. It's the perfect metaphor in a way, without reading too much into it, <laughs> um, <laughs> because when People are always complaining, especially on Twitter, <laughs> that just this this and that or the other is just not British. But then when you actually push someone for defining what that means, people kind of get a bit tongue-tied and they don't know. I might be, I might uh, find it easy to say what English is, being English mm. and being British, and, and maybe or maybe not when it goes to the other um, countries that make up the UK, they might find it more difficult um, because there there is something that brings us together. But yeah, we are unique in our own different ways. So there's somewhere there's a, um, in a Venn diagram, there's some crossover (laughs) somewhere. Uh, And yeah, I think um, breakfast, especially the fry up, definitely, you know, epitomizes that. Yeah, I think there's a very small space. So even within England, there's, you know, great differences between, say, the North East and the Southwest in terms of what we eat for breakfast, at least. and I'd say in the middle, a very small <laughs> intersection of the Venn diagram is probably eggs and bacon, maybe. I mean, I'm trying to think that there's Sausage. really, I'd say they're the, the. I mean, even baked beans you can't put in there because they're very divisive. So I'd say eggs and bacon are the stalwarts and then everything else is kind of popular or less popular depending on where you are. Sure. I didn't think baked beans were divisive till I read your book. Oh, it was well, a that, I mean, just a, a baked bean fan would say that, wouldn't they? <laughs> <laughs> riding roughshod over the rest of us. And you really get down to the nitty gritty with, of course, the question that you ask everybody that you meet, red sauce, brown sauce. Yes. Well, that was the interesting, I didn't know. Apparently there was a, a radio show, not a radio show, a game on Danny Baker's Five Live show. I'm not a Five Live listener due to being allergic to most sports that aren't cycling around eating things. Yeah. Um, but a friend of mine is very sporty and she told me, oh, like the red sauce, brown sauce game on the radio. And I had to do a bit of detective work because mm-hmm. uh, the Danny Baker show is no more. Various reasons we won't go into. Mm-hmm. Um, but I thought it was interesting that the sort of very briefly, the premise of the game was that I think it was actually called the sausage sandwich game. And they had a celebrity on usually from the world of sport. And people would compete, uh, listeners would compete to guess what they would have in a sausage sandwich, red sauce or brown sauce. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they're just obviously just 
you know, a random guest. But quite often they'd say, oh, so-and-so, he's from the North, so he'll probably be a brown sauce person, or oh, she sounds quite posh, so I think she'd be red sauce. And it really was people thought that they could guess. You know, it's a bit like fortune telling. You take up all the clues and you're like, oh, you're definitely a brown sauce person. So I found that really interesting <laughs> that, again, it's probably a class thing as well. We can really divide everything into sort of north-south divide, mm. class mm. divides, et cetera, and all these old stereotypes. And so I wanted to, I did ask everyone I met along the way what their preference was. And almost everyone had a preference one or the other. But even if they said, I'm a no source person, they were very vehement about it. They, they felt strongly that this defined them, that they didn't like any sauce. And that made them a bit different. Even though actually I don't really love either sauce. No, you're fairly ambivalent about it. Really, yeah, I'm you? sort of neutral in that I really like um, good bacon and good bread. And I don't think they need anything else. I mean, I do have some a quite... I have a bit of a niche taste in bacon sandwich condiments, which maybe we might come into. But mm-hmm. if like, I would put now, having been on this journey and you're always just offered red sauce or brown sauce, I came around to brown sauce a bit. It's a bit more interesting than ketchup. Um, but, you know, why, why spoil the purity of a bacon sandwich, in my opinion? Yeah, we should do some definitions for people. Because yes. I, I have many listeners around the world and they won't know what we're talking about. Red sauce, that's easy. Tomato ketchup. Well, you say that, but saying to, I was saying to someone down here in London mm-hmm. um, that my book was called Red Sauce, Brown Sauce. And I said, oh, so what's red sauce then? Oh. And I know in, in America, I think red sauce is kind of like Italian sort of tomato sauce. Like you get red sauce joints that Italian-American oh, okay. restaurants. But yeah, it is ketchup, but it's not as obvious. You just don't really hear it so much down here. I think it's more of a northern thing, red sauce, right. as in the name of that. So yeah, that's tomato ketchup mm-hmm. as known around the world. And brown sauce is a bit more niche. And as far as I can tell, it's only really eaten in the UK and the Republic of Ireland. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I think maybe you can get it in Australia, but it's certainly not big there. So I imagine it's an expat thing. And no one else eats it, which is a great shame because it's, it's actually a sort of ketchup, interestingly. They both come from the same origins but it has its roots as far as people can tell in the sort of store sources that um our naughty um empire building pillaging ancestors used to take on long sea voyages um and it was influenced by indian chutneys and it has lots of spices in and malaysian um fermented sauces and it was originally designed by a nottinghamshire grocer to go with pork pies so that's that's interesting. It, it didn't become associated with breakfast specifically until quite late on. And even today, when a lot of people say, oh, I'd only have it with breakfast. But other people said, because it was in the news recently, I think that uh, sales have really dropped. And I saw on Twitter people saying, oh, well, I always have it on, you know, cheese on toast. I have it with my Sunday roast. So there is more of a, a use for it, but it's now associated mostly with breakfast. No, I'm a brown sauce person, I suppose. Um, Why would it guess well, you, that? Because you're you, from the north. Of I mean, I guess I'm <laughs> I'm binary in that if I've got a proper fry up, I'll have a splot of each on opposite sides of the plate. You shouldn't have to choose. However, if it comes That's down true. to one, it's brown. I don't have them very often. Um, without going into too much detail, <laughs> I developed a load of um, food intolerances. And for someone who likes their food, it's a pet. I mean, it's 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 good that I can cook because I can find ways around it. But two of them, tomatoes and onions. Oh, Which wow, is basically ninety-five percent of all recipes we ever make contains <laughs> those two things. 
so red sauce is out the window. Yeah. Brown sauce, daddy sauce, which I was very sad to see it admitted from, from the book. If we did the Pepsi challenge on <laughs> HP and daddies, I'd place money that daddies would win. Don't get, I'd, I'd actually forgotten about daddies because you don't <laughs> see it a lot down here. I'm sorry. Is, it a, I'm is, sorry. It a, is that a I northern apologize. thing? That's all right. I will, I'll I forgive you. I think it you. might be a northern thing. Yeah, mm. I'm going to look out for some and I'm going to do a taste test. Yeah, but it has no, somehow, I don't know what is in there, no tomatoes, no onions, so I can have daddies. So I rely on that. But well, otherwise, like you, I've had to become, although I liked it anyway, but I've become a uh, mustard. I like to think aficionado. I think mustard <laughs> is the connoisseur's choice, personally, because I think the great thing about particularly an English mustard is that it's it's heat, isn't it? It's that sort of really sinus clearing heat, mm. but it doesn't unlike a Dijon mustard. It doesn't have a sort of vinegary kick, so you get the flavour of the bacon as well or the sausage. So, although a lot of people said to me that they would have, uh, I think it, some people said to me that they would have one red sauce on a sausage sandwich and brown sauce on a bacon sandwich, or vice versa, and so. Yeah, I didn't. I thought people would justify it into one camp, but a lot of people do play around a bit. You can be a, a bit less. You, you know. can be brown. You can be red. You can be a cat, a cat and a dog person. You know. <laughs> I love this for our country. I feel, like, <laughs> I feel like the future's bright when people can admit to liking both sources, and that's fine. Yeah, absolutely. So, Felicity, your book is, of course, an odyssey. It sounds to me like a nightmare of planning. The people, the places, the foods, the destinations, the factories. How did you organise it? Well, I, I'm not a great advanced planner. I always just want to get out there and, and do things on the hoof, um, which isn't really the best way to approach a big project like this. Um, unfortunately for me, I ended up with a year more to plan it than I'd intended because we signed the contracts and then lockdown happened. Uh, I sort of spent that year, I bought an enormous map of the UK and I spent it sort of putting pins in places that I wanted to go because I wanted to have a real range I wanted for example to go to all four home nations mm-hmm. I wanted to tick off like big hitters like porridge and marmalade and you know a few personal passions like marmite um but I also it needed to make sense as a journey as well um but the truth is actually you just don't know until you get on the road the sometimes the most interesting things are the things that you don't plan for so well that's what I tell myself so there's only a certain amount you can do so yeah I did I did a bit but I have to say that I'm I prefer to sort of see, see where the road takes me as it is and actually some of my best laid plans didn't work out because of COVID even in 2021 because um, I set off and then um I think it was the Delta variant at that point. Mm. Um, such nostalgia. Um, closed the Marmite <laughs> factory. They wanted, I was going to go to the Marmite factory. I was going to go to the world's biggest baked bean factory, which is in Wigan. Um, obviously, I was going to go to Berry Market for the black pudding. Mm-hmm. And then the Northwest was closed and Marmite got very worried about oh, gosh, of course. Do you know, I completely forgot that we yeah. in, the, in the North were under lockdown longer than everybody else. 
Well, they just suddenly I heard whoever it was at the time. Was it Matt Hancock? I can't remember when his glorious career came to a halt. <laughs> but someone on the radio saying, you know, don't go to the Northwest unless you actually absolutely have to. And I think I thought, well, I feel like I absolutely have to go to the world's biggest baked bean factory. But is this is this wrong? But in the end, I found an excellent um, baked bean related substitute in South Wales. So that was all fine. But it, there was a lot of it was a lot of stress in terms of making everything match up because I couldn't be away for too long just because I have a little dog that depends on me being there. So I was away for um, I was away for about 10 weeks, I think. Yeah, and that was that was probably so. It was a bit of a rush fitting everything in. You did certainly run into a few issues, didn't you? You're probably sick of um, yeah, telling well, these stories, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> a lot, of, yeah. A lot of people were surprised that I <laughs> at how clumsy I was. So yes, I managed to um, fall over on day two of the trip. I fell off a bridge. Um, this wasn't a cycling accident. It was a me being an idiot accident, but it was quite dramatic. Um, I fell off a, a wooden bridge um, and did the splits, which is not a position mm-hmm. I found myself in, maybe ever, actually. I wasn't a very gymnastic child. Um, and obviously my hamstring didn't enjoy that particularly. And then I managed to make it feel even worse in West Wales when I tried to go swimming. So again, not bike related and slipped over into mud and actually ripped it this time and so I couldn't walk for quite a lot of the trip and there was a week that I couldn't really cycle um and then for a long time I could cycle but not walk very fast um so yeah I didn't make life easy for myself uh really I nearly got um ejected from a train in the highlands um various complicated ticket related reasons but yeah I had I had some bad luck but actually many people were very kind to me on the way Mm. And also, believe it or not, the weather was better than on my French trip. So, oh, okay. you know, hurrah, hurrah for Britain. I know it's not part of our brand, but the weather was quite nice. Well, I mean, you write so well and so evocatively that you really are. I really felt with you when all those things were going down. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry quite, about that. <laughs> I'm quite accident prone myself, so I could identify Good. how I've Good. got to 45. Yeah. I do not know. I can barely walk in a straight line without falling over never mind cycle around the UK <laughs> well, it was as I said it wasn't without mishap uh, was there not a point where you just thought f this I'm I'm gonna do it in two years time or something I mean it was tempting but then mm. I just thought I really wanted to because there were some appointments I'd made so far in advance because I was so keen to get on with the trip um, oh yeah, I suppose people are really going out of the way advance. with COVID and stuff. Yeah, almost felt so things obliged. like yeah, hmm. yes, well, stuff like the guys at the World Porridge Championships up in the Highlands. The guy said, "Oh, because it's a volunteer committee." He said, "Oh, I'll get so and so, you know, Heather and so, you know, all of these people from different labouring villages to come round and we'll have a chat." Mm-hmm. Um, it's like there have been there were lots of moving parts that I didn't want to let down. I mean, when it got to, I went over to the Isle of Man to talk to them about kippers. And this was, um, the Isle of Man was closed for a very long time because it's part of the UK, but not part of Great Britain. Um, So it had its own laws about people coming in and out. And people just, you weren't allowed to go onto the island unless you're a resident for, I think, about 18 months. And I really, I love kippers. And I think they're a really underrated part of the Mm -hmm. traditional breakfast. And so I really wanted to go and talk to someone um, there about kippers. And there's only one guy still doing it in the traditional traditional way. And he said, oh, yeah, sure, you know, come over, we'll have a chat. And then when I got there, 
to his, you know, you had to fly to fly to the Isle of Man or, you know, you can take a ferry. But And I got to his little smokery in Peel and his wife looked a bit surprised to see me. And she was away for quite a long time going to get him. And then when she said, oh, he's outside. And he said, oh, did you not get my message? And I said, no. And he, he said, oh, I changed my mind. I decided it was too risky to talk to you. So I said, I said you shouldn't bother. And I thought, well, thank goodness I didn't get your message because everything was booked. But it was that kind of thing. I never knew whether people were going to be happy to talk to me, given that, you know, I'd come from London, which people seem to think was a plague pit. Um, mm-hmm. Or not. So I did take lots of tests with me, but it made it and it was an interesting time to do a journey, I would say. I'm not sure if you're the kind of person who is just a, a finisher and a completist. That I'm one of those people. Once I've decided to do something, mm. even when things are great, collapsing around me, I, I will kind of soldier on if I've already started. <laughs> yes, yeah, so exactly. Um, yeah. I think once I made the decision to go mm. and not put it off for yet another year, I sort of wanted to do it. But there were certainly dark nights of the soul. Um, you know, when you're trying to sleep on a, uh, a ferry from Belfast with loads of uh, people having conversations about building materials in your ear and you're thinking you can't move your leg. You're thinking, why, why am I doing this? Why on <laughs> earth did I not just say, let's give, let's not do it this year either? But I am I am glad I did it. It's about that very, I don't know if you've ever come across the idea of type B fun, that at the time is not fun at all. But in retrospect, you remember very fondly and a lot of this book was type b fun yeah, i mean some of it was type a stories, in the moment yeah yeah love, great love stories yeah yes well i did think when um you know after i'd managed to scoop myself up from my various accidents i did think well it'll make good copy that was what i comforted myself with because people want to read about other people's misery i always Absolutely. do i like you know you don't want someone having a good time what's the point of that change of tack now fry ups the other things are represented in the book but of course it's the first thing that we think of. I just wanted to ask you quickly, well, there's full Englishes in England, there's a full mm-hmm. Scottish, a full Welsh, there's eels to fry, which seems like it's one of those things that probably go back to, well, Stone Age man. Like it's been around <laughs> forever. Yeah. And it's something you tackle quite early in the book, in the introduction, if I remember rightly. Um, it's got quite a surprising history. Maybe surprising yes. for the wrong reasons. Yeah, well, I mean, I wanted to. We were in the course of, course of my travels. I went to the Viking ship burial at Sutton Hoo. I can say there was no evidence for a fry up in the Viking Suffolk. Um, in fact, there's no evidence that people were really eating fry ups as as such as a meal of that kind for breakfast until probably the late 19th century. But they wouldn't have regarded it. It wasn't this. When people are arguing now on Twitter about fry ups and they're saying this is what you must have and you must have baked beans or you mustn't have, you know, hash browns, they're terrible, you can't have them. Um, they seem like there's some sort of there's some sort of authentic traditional, you know, composition of a fry up that you can't deviate from. But in fact, the Victorians, who we think of as sort of the great breakfasters that we're all emulating. Well, they invented everything, they didn't they? Christmas. They, yeah. Racism. Um, <laughs> they probably didn't invent that, did they? We had that before. They went big on it. Yeah. Um, but they wouldn't. They would have had their, a lot of these elements would have been part of breakfast. So the very, you know, big country houses that you know, sort of Downton Abbey going into the Edwardian period, they would have had things like uh, you know, bacon and sausages and eggs and kippers and things. But it wasn't that you would have them all together on one plate. And if you were very poor, 
you would probably maybe have eggs and bacon on a Sunday, but you wouldn't necessarily have a sausage. You certainly wouldn't have had baked beans. Mm-hmm. Um, it wouldn't. It wasn't a thing called a fry up or an English or a Scottish breakfast. And it would have been something older listeners might recall. You don't see it so much these days, but something called a mixed grill. You'd get oh, yeah, more yeah. for lunch or dinner. And basically, a bre- a, a cooked breakfast as we know it today is the mixed grill, but without the how to get a chop, don't you, on a mixed yeah, grill? Yeah. And you don't you don't tend to find that. That once was part of the breakfast menu as well. So it was just something that might be eaten at any time of day that suddenly has become this thing that we only eat for breakfast and we wouldn't have it any other time and has rules about it, which would surprise our forebears. And I think the first mention of a full English breakfast is the term is I think in the 1930s, but it was not clear what it referred. It doesn't refer to what we would now think of as 1930 as a, as a, um, an English breakfast mm. and certainly a sort of full Scottish and full Welsh are far more recent terms. And so it's just this, I think it's just this marketing thing. I'd love someone to pay me to do a dissertation on this please i would love to do a phd on where this idea of the english breakfast came from and the fry up and etc because it is not as much it's a bit like the plowman's lunch or the cream tea that we think of as sort of time (laughs) immemorial they're not they're created by various marketing boards and i have a suspicion that the fry up is similar it's something that we would have eaten parts of anyway but it was never this meal like you get on a postcard now no indeed i as soon as i came across that part in in your book i reached for Good Things in England by Florence White. I don't even yes, know it. Yes, yeah, yeah. I, I'm very familiar with it. 1932. There's a big breakfast section, and there are things that you there's things that you have in the book that mm. are breakfast, but not um, you know fried breakfast. So there's kedgeri is in there, mm. um, but there's also things like um, devil kidneys. There was um, a, a raised game pie. I'd give it a go. I'd give it a go. But interestingly, if you look at, I've got some sort of Victorian and Edwardian breakfast books because mm. these people that had a lot of time on their hands, they could eat breakfast for hours. And so you get you get books devoted solely to breakfast recipes. And you'll have things in there like macaroni cheese, like fried place, like prawn curry, everything. Like in lots of the world to this day, you would eat anything for breakfast that you would eat at any other time of the day. And it's interesting to me that we have not, it's not just us, but we've really narrowed our diet at breakfast time. And if you say there are things like Kedri, which I mean, very few people eat for breakfast these days, I would say, but have a, you know, it could be eaten at any time of day. But mostly the things that we eat at breakfast, you wouldn't eat at other times of day. And that makes us very unusual. Um, so it's really interesting that it's a very recent, recent thing. And before, um, if you look at people like Samuel Pepys in the 17th century, he was always eating things like venison pasties for breakfast and eels and et cetera. It was just for a long time, breakfast wasn't a very big deal because mealtimes were, were different to how they, to where we put them today. But when the, we did sort of start to have a substantial thing called breakfast, we didn't have any special foods associated with it. And, you know, mm. beyond the sort of practicalities that you didn't have your servants up all night, probably, you know, making very long, slow things. Um, but otherwise, you'd just eat anything. And suddenly, you know, oh, gosh, you've had a, you know, you've had a Pop-Tart for lunch. That's unacceptable. I mean, does anyone eat Pop-Tarts anymore? Maybe not. No, not but, since yeah, the it's interesting. 1980s, surely, 1990s. <laughs> I don't show my age. <laughs> I remember being very excited about them when they came over the pond. That's for sure. I do. Yeah, I think, I, yeah, I mean, not to get, go down a rabbit hole, but they were very nice, not toasted, I seem to recall. That was my favourite thing. <laughs> Going back to fry-ups, uh, do you have any, um, without getting into a heated debate, I'll try and hold back. <laughs> Is there some definite 
must-haves or must-not-dos for you personally when it comes to a, a fried breakfast? Well, I'm glad you say for you personally because I do think that, you know, there are there are no rules really when it comes to a fry-up. I don't like baked beans on my fry-up, as listeners may have guessed. I just, I'm a bit Alan Partridge about it. That's quite a British reference, but I don't like, I don't like the source of the beans touching the egg, really. I don't know why. I'm not, I'm fine with food touching in general, but there's a purity about the fry up, you know, sort yeah. of disparate elements, and it starts to look a bit gross when you start to mix it. So yeah, I'm, it looks uh, like I a like child's it. eating it, doesn't it? A toddler. It looks, it just looks like <laughs> I know what contents. you mean from that point of view. It, yeah, your compost <laughs> bin. So I prefer, I like baked beans, but I don't want them on my fry up. I am against the hash brown, like sort of King Canute swearing at the waves. I just, I don't. I don't want fried potatoes on my breakfast because everything else on that plate is fried. I don't want a crunchy fried potato. It doesn't it doesn't soak up grease. Mm. So I like a, a Scottish tatty scone or a London bubble and squeak or something. In Irish, they do uh, uh, in Northern Ireland, they do potato bread, which serves a similar function. Yeah, I, like potato bread, I want yeah. something like carby and doughy on my breakfast, not something crisp and fried. So I'm against the hash brown. Yeah, so it has um, to fit into the bread category, I think. Yeah, well, no, I don't mind a, bub- a bubble, a bubble and squeak. Um, is in my opinion a very fine addition to a breakfast, and one that you don't find that much these days. I'm a big pudding fan. Yeah, me too. So black pudding, um, very keen on. Never met a black pudding I didn't like. Um, white pudding. We might have to. Ex- we might have to explain what a white pudding is. So a white pudding is it's made like a black pudding in that it is a sausage that is boiled, sort of cooked, poached, and cooked. And sold cooked, and then you sort of heat it up by frying it uh, before eating. But unlike a black pudding, whose principal ingredient is blood, um, a white pudding is, depending on where it's made, it's usually got quite a lot of fat in it, but also uh, meat. Traditionally, I imagine scraps of meat. Now it's often made from sort of prime cuts um, and some sort of oatmeal or barley or uh, wheat rust, depending on where in the country you are. And in the West Country, they've got something called hogs pudding, which is quite spiced, sort of sweetly spiced as well. Mm, I've never had it. Um, it's, it's it's not that easy to find, even in Devon and Cornwall. But what I found fascinating to a pudding geek like myself is that it was once made, if you look in uh, Florence White, you will see that she has a recipe for hogs pudding that comes from Sussex, I think, and is made with currants as well. So it's once made in the southeast of Eng- in the south of England as a whole. But that also links it to me to the Scottish fruit pudding, mm. which has no meat in it at all, but it does have uh, animal fat in it. And then it has currants. So it looks like a spotted dip, like, um, you know, a steamed dessert pudding, but they have it on the fry up. And then, you know, on the east coast of Scotland, you have a red pudding, which is kind of more like a sausage and is not often found on a breakfast. But then you often have a haggis, which is kind of like a pudding in a different shape which I'd never, I, I've got a lot of family in Scotland. I'd never seen it on a breakfast before no, no, I um, until I went to Scotland on this trip and found it very common. It goes very well on a breakfast. Um, so, you know, I, and then there's something, there's a few other categories of pudding that involve vegetables, which are kind of not like puddings as we know them, but are a sort of interesting side, side note. So pro puddings, more the better. Mm, you mentioned very briefly the dock pudding. The dock pudding, Which I've yeah, been on the hunt Valley. for. Oh, the hunt for the dock itself to make it from for years, and it's eluded me. But I found some oh. this year, but it had grown too much. Oh! So hopefully next spring I'll be able to make a, a dock pudding. I'm quite excited I, um, about it. It'll know, be crap. I know, well, I know that there's <laughs> I the tell. dock pudding championships, which used to enter. 
Yes, it's Mythelmroid, I think it is. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And um, I watched a video, some shaky footage of um, some people making the dock pudding for the championships. And um, for people that may not know about the dock pudding, as I didn't before I wrote this book, it's traditionally made from uh, sort of the fresh, the first sort of fresh shoots of spring. And there's the sweet dock leaf, which isn't the same as you'd rub on a nettle sting. Um, and, you know, various other wild plants. I, I get the impression you may know differently that you can make it a sort of movable feast. You would make yeah. it from what, what you find because obviously these poor peasants had, had no fresh vegetables for months and suddenly these shoots come up. So the obvious thing to do because we're in the UK is to fry them. So you make them into a kind of sort of, it almost looks like a sag bhaji that you might get in a North Indian restaurant. And it's just uh, sort of chopped and fried, I think traditionally in bacon fat or lard, but I'm sure you could do a vegetarian version and then served up and it looks delicious. And there is a championships held every year, which is I think almost the only place that you can try it. And uh, next year I'm coming up. So I hope to see you competing. Right, okay. If you throw them down the gauntlet. I don't think gauntlet. I've got the provenance. Yeah, I am. I feel like a, <laughs> as a southerner, I don't think I'd be brave enough to enter, but I'd like you to enter. Okay, okay. Oh, no, I've said okay now. <laughs> Bloody hell. You have. It's recorded. Uh, well, do you know, whilst talking about these things, one thing that's very well represented, you know, are those things that are very regional and something where you, you've never eaten it before. I've had a lot of problems in the past by cooking recipes that maybe just have one or two or three ingredients. And this includes things like bread and pastry, where the devil's in the detail and really you have to be shown how to make it. From reading a method or a description of the food, you don't always get a big picture. Um, so that's kind of why I was kind of joking about the fact it'd be a bit crap, because it, it, it won't be what it should be. But what I'm leading to is you got lots of recipes in the book were there any particularly tricky ones for you to um, pin down? I've had problems with oat cakes in the past. That's the reason I ask, really. Oh, interesting. <laughs> I mean, oat cakes, I feel like, and I, I have bought some. So oat cakes, we are talking about the, um, the and people get very shirty if you get it wrong. I'm oh, going yeah. to say the Midlands oat yeah. cake, yeah. but is also eaten, I believe, in Manchester and Sheffield and parts of what I would regard as the North. They're more like a sort of um, a crepe or a tortilla or a wrap or whatever. It's yeah. a floppy thing. It's made from either pure oats or oats and wheat flour. Interestingly, I think a lot of people, for understandable reasons, don't realise that wheat was only grown really in the south of England mm. for a long time because it, it doesn't really like rain. And this the islands tend to be the rain, you know, rainy as you get further up. And so oats and barley were the staple crops from, you know, the the Midlands upwards, basically. And these breads um, were just, you know, the staple food. They wouldn't have been eating white bloomers and, you know, wheat sourdough and stuff. And, the you know, it's a very quick bread because you can literally just put it on a griddle and then wrap it around any filling you happen to have to hand. They are so delicious. I am on a, a they are mission good. I had to some recently. Them to the rest of the country. Oh, they're so much nicer than those supermarket wraps that you can buy that are full of palm oil and nastiness and don't taste of anything. They're delicious, but they can be tricky to make, just like any crepe, because you know, you need to spread them out on a hot griddle before they get before they start cooking and won't spread anymore. And you need to be able to flip them and not break and etc. But they are worth you can buy them online places in Stoke-on-Trent but they are worth they are worth making but I had to watch so many videos I still don't think mine are as good obviously right. as people that make thousands every day but they they are delicious and there's a real satisfaction in 
you know, eating something that you've made warm from the pan, which I don't even, it's exciting when a package of oatcakes arrives from, you know, through your door from the potteries, but it's also exciting to eat something you've made. So that was tricky. Um, The Stotty actually, um, which is a uh, Northeastern bread roll, which also has an interesting and quite recent history. And it has a texture, it's a bread roll, but it has a texture a bit, almost like um, a very springy English muffin with quite a tough crust so it's quite chewy but not dry and it's so lovely and again I think god we've embraced the ciabatta which is in my opinion not as good as the stotty why Mm -hmm. do we we don't value these things that we have right under our noses and well do you know what I was just about to say that and you probably well you will have a better idea than me after your cycle tour of of France we, although people regionally really champion their food and it doesn't travel but you know there is a certain I guess it's snobbishness but from mm. from all types of people that this kind of food is dull and boring and it's oh it's it used to be peasant food i'm not going to eat that now mm. where whereas you go to france and, and spain and italy as well you know they really revere those yeah, sorts they would of have, foods you know if 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 the stotty was a french thing i can guarantee that there would be a worshipful brotherhood of stotty bakers i am not joking here there would be and they would have a festival. They would probably have ceremonial robes with Stotty hats. And there would be a festival devoted to the Stotty once a year with competitions and, you know, Stotty feasts and et cetera. And that would just be a thing. Like the smallest, if you go to any French region, look for their regional speciality and then type in Confrérie Brotherhood of whatever it is, you will find there's an organisation devoted to, you know, worshipping this, whether it's Quiche Lorraine or uh, Piment d'Espelette or whatever. And here we just were embarrassed about it. And you, I think mm. it's the, I do think that it's snobbery and that we think that peasant food from Italy is sophisticated and we're embarrassed about our own. But I think the big retailers have a part to play. I mean, Greg's do say that they tried to introduce the Stotti because Greg's is a company, Greg's the Baker's big bakery chain here in the UK. Mm-hmm. They are, they originated in Newcastle and they said they tried to introduce the Stotti to their shops elsewhere. And people didn't buy them. And I thought, well, how did you promote it? How did you? I think people need some help to know. But there is no good reason. They make an excellent sandwich, a Stotty, really good. Because um, they've got that lovely springy texture. Mm. I think they could be big, but we just we ignore them. There is such such amazing variety. Well, hopefully people will cook. You know, I mean, you're I a very so. good, you're a very good recipe writer. You are known Thank for you. it. So <laughs> 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 I'm sure they're all excellent. I've cooked many of your recipes before and they've always turned out well which I can't say for everyone <laughs> as you know. someone that cooks a lot of other people's recipes uh, every week I can compare that not not everyone is so I'm glad that you said that because <laughs> <laughs> it's funny that isn't it how some recipes I, I don't get on I'm sure they're great in person but Mary Berry and Nigel Slater don't know what it is yeah pass through the prism of their mind then my mind it goes but I do wrong. think that it's a skill recipe <laughs> writing <laughs> recipe writing is you know, you have to be able to cook, obviously, to write a recipe, but it is a different skill being able to explain why you're doing something. Mm. Because I think sometimes, especially when you get professional chefs, and neither of those people are professional chefs, but they just give you the bare minimum and because they expect you to know why you're doing something or you don't need to know because, you know, you're just a minion. Um, but <laughs> I think that, you you know, you cook so much better if you understand that, you know, this is the reason that, you know, you need to get as much moisture out of this as possible. Otherwise, your pastry is going to be soggy yes, or something. Yes, while you're doing each stage, rather than just putting the stages in. Exactly. Otherwise, mm. you know, slapdash people like me attempted to just skip it, because who cares, and then go, why is my pastry soggy? So I do I do think that it's a skill. 
And I'm, yeah. yeah. And also, hopefully, even if it is a food that someone's familiar with, it's nice to taste something that hasn't been made in a factory. As much yes. as a, I love, you know, buying factory made foods, especially condiments, <laughs> it is nice to have a taste of something to see how it really was. Is there going to be a trilogy? Or have you been put off for life? Could be a quartet, you don't know. Um, no, I haven't been put off for life. I feel like every time I go on one of these trips, I learn something for the next uh, trip. And so then I just have mm. new and different problems for the next one. Um, I would like to do another one just because I think it's such a great way to see a country is cycling around it, just chatting to people. It is. It's almost a bit of anthropology, I think. Again, without going too deep. But it, <laughs> it, is... really, it really felt like it is because you're really with real people, talk about real things and... The minutiae of our daily lives. Yeah, because it, you, know. you are, you really are in a car. You're sort of cushioned from it. You're, you know, you're self sufficient. Mm. You could sleep in a car if you wanted to, etc. Whereas on a bike, you can hear people shouting stuff at you. You can people, you know, can see people goggling at you, thinking, "Where on earth is she going with all that stuff?" And it's mm-hmm. with just, a you know, being vest on. Yeah, debate being vest on. You know, people <laughs> people do feel like they can just chat to you, which is really nice. That occasionally. <laughs> occasionally you attract some interesting characters but in general I think it's a great way to see a country and you really immerse yourself in it um but I like to be able to chat to people and so that makes people say Italy or Spain or it worries me that my Spanish is terrible my Italian non-existent so either I need to get Mm. on the old language learning apps uh in the next six months or I quite fancy the states I was gonna say the states a great road yeah a great road tripping nation the distances are quite large yeah you're not you're not cycling well (laughs) at least I am tempted but yeah yeah, we will see I I like the idea of doing the states but there might be a reason that people don't tend to write bike bike touring books about the states Mm. I mean I lived in the US for a couple of years and did you ever see anyone on a bike no well I went to a university so it was a few a few students that was about it I was in um Houston where it's like oh, 45 cool. degrees every day yes so, I'm yeah, just no thinking of those big glass cycles. towers from um the start of Dallas and then reflecting reflecting on me on my bike <laughs> but I mean I have to say after we've just been talking about breakfasts I've been tainted my favorite breakfast is pancakes bacon maple syrup it's and it's the perfect fault. hangover cure as well whilst whilst I'm at it no. no i can't no oh, waffles no. fried chicken what about oh. waffles, waffles and fried chicken <laughs> that's another good one i say that i will eat maybe almost, i've done it so you don't have to yeah i will eat almost anything for breakfast um you know i love spicy food for breakfast i'm very happy with fish i like that japanese weird natto with me weird like natto stuff that is sort of got a slightly ectoplasm like texture Fried chicken for breakfast, I would struggle with. But, you know, if there was a book in it, I'd give it a go. Noble. I'm professional to the last. <laughs> oh, well, yeah. Again, thank you very much for sparing the time. And, yeah, well, are there things around the corner? Uh, so I'm going to be at Abergavenny Food Festival, the Devizes Food Festival, and the Dartmouth Food Festival. So if anyone's in those regions in the west of England and Wales, then please come and see me. Oh, I'll leave links to their websites in the show notes for people so they can have a nosy yeah okay right brilliant well cheerio thanks again thank you cheers bye-bye and i've left links to those events that felicity would be attending in the show notes as well as links to her book her website and her social media thanks again to felicity for coming on the podcast i really enjoyed that chat it was very funny 
Now, I mentioned at the beginning that there's an Easter egg associated with this episode for any subscribers out there. I've added the full cut of the part in the chat where we discuss recipe writing. Now, I must admit we did very well to keep out of rabbit holes, but we did go off topic to discuss the merits of making one's own mayonnaise and the strange foods eaten as students, which was all very interesting, but nothing to do with breakfast, hence why it's an Easter egg. Yes, subscribers get access to my Easter eggs page. There's loads of extras from past episodes. There's deleted scenes, extra bits, uncut interviews. There's an extra mini season there. And there are extra blog posts just for subscribers. And you can find those on the blog by searching the keyword premium content. If you want to start a subscription and support the blog and podcast, go to the website britishfoodhistory.com A subscription is just £3 a month and everything I receive goes back into making more content. Alternatively, you can treat me to a one-off virtual coffee or pint. In fact, you can treat me to a one-off anything. But look, there's obviously no pressure. But if you can, please like and subscribe and tell a friend or two and leave comments, reviews and ratings. They're really important. Every single one makes a big difference and I will be eternally grateful. Whilst I was away, I appeared on a few other podcasts, if you want to check them out. I went on the Seasons Eatings podcast to discuss sugar in the main, as well as the Well-Seasoned Librarian, again to discuss sugar, but also about British food in general, and how I somehow ended up in the career I have found myself. To be honest, I don't really know how that's happened. I was also on This Shakespeare Life, talking about one of my favourite fruits, the rather forgotten meddler. I've left links to those episodes in the show notes if you want to check them out. But if you want to keep tabs on what I'm doing in general, go to BritishFoodHistory.com. There's been quite a few posts added since the last episode. Or, of course, follow me on social media. If you've got any comments, questions or queries about anything from this episode, or indeed any episode in the podcast so far, please get in contact via email at neil at BritishFoodHistory.com or on Twitter at Neil Buttery, or Instagram at Dr, that's D-R, underscore Neil, underscore Buttery. I'll see you next time.